Hello and welcome to another episode of The Wannabe Entrepreneur, the podcast about what's really like to bootstrap a company. And today I have here with me Kirill. Hey Kirill, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with The Wannabe Entrepreneurs. Hey, thanks for having me. Today we'll be speaking about the true bootstrapping journey with you. And uh, Kirill quit his job to focus full-time on his projects. He had some nice savings and everything. And he started by creating a tool called Fubar, which was basically a tool that would help restaurants to create beautiful menus with pictures and everything. And he kind of built it in in the way he, he knew back then, but then he realized that maybe it was not the best. And now is uh, building uh, impulse.dev, which is an open source tool for developers to help them with their HTML. So I think there'll be a lot of interesting facts uh, that we'll be dis discussing about your journey, Kirill, and I'm super excited to, to get started with that. But first, I would like to ask you to give a little introduction about yourself. My story is relatively boring in the context of what I do, because I've never been anything other than a software engineer, actually. Um, I got into software engineering, or like just generally programming and hacking around um, 17 years, when I was 17 years old, now I'm 27. And I didn't have any other career or anything like that. I do have like other interests, but uh, like not really. So I, I've, I like I've started, um, I, like I, I work in different companies as a developer for around seven years, I think. And uh, yeah, and at some point I collected like enough savings and enough um, bravery, I guess, to mm -hmm. um, <laughs> yeah, have quit my job um, and, and with a partner start a business, which was for a long time a kind of gestalt of mine and uh, something that I wanted to do for many reasons, um, some pragmatic and rational and some not. And uh, yeah, and I've spent the last two and a half years building a SaaS business um, for mm -hmm. restaurants, which I like kind of quit. So it, it's still alive and it still makes some money. Uh, and hopefully it makes enough money so that I don't have to uh, look for a job uh, at least just yet. And I decided to uh, do something else, which is an open source dev tool, um, something that I also wanted to do for a long time. Um, after having reflected on a lot of things that went wrong with the original business and also with mm. my personal attitude and like my personal preferences about what makes me happy and what makes me miserable. I think it's a journey that we all have to go through to, to fully understand that. Uh, and, and you said that uh, you had both rational reasons and personal reasons to start um, or to, to bet on yourself and to bet on your own projects. What were those? The rational reasons were more based around things like financial independence, um, maybe like building some long-lasting assets, things like that. So before that, I would like save and invest some portion of money, which would then allow me to do all that. And I was at some point um, really into this idea of uh, retiring early, and then like just having the passive income and stuff like that. And um, this was definitely one of the ways to go, which was to just uh, continue to build my career and just level up and level up and just join, um, I don't know, like e either larger or 
faster growing companies and just make more money. And then by the, by the age of 35, 40, I can, I mean, at least in Ukraine, I can kind of stop working and, um, uh, I mean, and enjoy my early retirement. But, uh, at some point I realized that, uh, like when I collected enough to just go and do something else, I realized that I'm not ready to, um, like continue going down the career path for like a decade more uh, just for my future safety. Like it just felt like postponed happiness. Um, so I kind of quit that idea of just um, investing enough cash to be able to sustain myself uh, and decided to just optimize for kind of having an adventure. So the rational reason was there. Um, one way to become kind of wealthy is to collect enough cash and get the passive income. But the other one is to build um, businesses and assets that make money. I mean, like, obviously. And uh, yeah, I decided that um, the ceiling with uh, how much money you can make is uh, for most people much higher when you build a business or like a product than just collecting enough cash. Yeah. Um, so that was the kind of rational, pragmatic reason. And the non-rational reason was that um, I just wanted to kind of see what happens, actually. I just wanted to have an adventure. And uh, right. I was totally ready from the beginning that it might not go the way it's planned or it might fail completely and stuff like that. But I knew from the beginning that I would regret a lot more if I just don't yeah. do it. Um, yeah. yeah. So it was, it was kind of much... The, the, it seemed much better for me to just go and maybe try it and maybe fail and maybe go back and find another job. Would you say that you have an entrepreneur mindset? Like, do, do you have side projects and, uh, well, projects while you're working for uh, for these big corporates? Once, like when I was 16 years old or something like that, I was trying to build some business in kind of in air quotes. And I remember <laughs> there was this online um, store that would sell books and uh, gifts and stuff like Amazon. that. <laughs> no, 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 it's like a local, yeah, like a local right, right. Um, marketplace in Ukraine. And they had a referral program. Um, so you can put links and uh, if people follow those links um, on the internet and they buy something that you have some commission. And on top of that, they also had this idea that if you invite other people who become um, partners, who put referral links, then you can make some commission from their commission. Um, wow. And okay. they thought, oh, wow, that's a way to kind of make money without uh, doing anything myself. <laughs> the classic and, pyramid scheme. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and the first thing I, I did was I went to the job um, searching websites and I put a lot of uh, job offers kind of, uh, like uh -huh. you can become like a, um, like a seller, premium seller things like, uh, and, uh, <laughs> you can like join, uh, via this link and stuff like that. So it was clearly spam. I was banned from those websites, like in a week. <laughs> uh, I, I, I didn't think back then that it was kind of fair. I didn't, I didn't understand what, what I did wrong, but <laughs> it was, it was kind of fun. We never this do. We funny. never do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this was my like actual uh, first attempt to build something like that. Other than that, like not not that much stuff. Actually, I've uh, before I became um, a software engineer in my teenage years, all I did was playing Counter Strike like semi competitively. Right. <laughs> oh, and yeah, yeah. So like I was uh, 
um, you know, you know I, I, I sometimes joke that um, it's not that easy to be a kind of a team leader of five teenagers, <laughs> including yourself. <laughs> so maybe I got some kind of, kind of positive experience. No, there's actually, I was, when I chatted with uh, Arvid Kohl, um, we, I don't know if you know him, but he's quite yeah. famous in the, in the hacking world. And he also said something similar. He said that he learned all of his uh, entrepreneurial skills from uh, World of Warcraft. With the raids yeah. and you know team leading and management and everything, so for all the parents out there that say that uh, their sons or daughters should be doing anything else besides gaming, well, now you have here great examples that gaming can actually give you skills for life. <laughs> yeah, I was always pro gaming, especially if you compete. Um, it teaches you so many skills that yeah. um, that go beyond um, like just just trying to kind of do headshots or whatever yeah. because you need a lot of persistence at least uh you need a lot of a temper uh yeah. like you, yeah to 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 especially if you play with the team like you need to be a good communicator and stuff so yeah it yeah. was really hard and fun and it's a real some sport. part of me yeah yeah it's just sport yeah and so some part yeah. of me still wants to just play counter-strike a lot i mean like <laughs> competitively and now we kind of understand a little bit your your background and uh and we understand that you wanted this adventure, right? Uh, you said that you could retire at 35 or 40, which, by the way, for me, it's already amazing. Uh, and most likely, you won't be able to do that now as, a, oh, yeah, as an yeah. entrepreneur. <laughs> but uh, you also wanted the adventure. You wanted to do something more with your life besides just coding or, you know, uh, playing Counter-Strike, I guess, if you would retire early. So you, you quit your job to focus on a project. Did you have any idea which project you would work on? No, not not really. You are really lucky if there is something that you really want to do and it's you already know that there is a market gap and you can yeah. kind of make a business out of it. Mm -hmm. I don't think that it's the default case. Like I don't think it's the case for most of people. They would either not know exactly what to do, uh, but maybe have some insight in where there are opportunities or the other way around. Um, right. If you have both, you're, you're really lucky. So yeah, so we went through that process and the thing that surfaced at the top was we both wanted to improve the visitor's experience um, when, when going out to restaurants mm -hmm. and cafes. Yeah, and it was pre-COVID. COVID did not happen. It was like we, our initial idea was actually we were thinking about something that would help help you split bills when you're done. And then we right. made some market research, and we, then we saw that there is probably no opportunity. There is a long graveyard of businesses that were were trying to do that. And then, like after like a lot of, um, I, I guess, minds pivoting and speaking to different people we settled uh, to this idea of uh, let's create digital menus uh, that you can access via a link, of course, but also a QR code. Um, and then sometime later via an NFC tag and uh, also allow restaurants to take orders either inside the venue or delivery takeaway orders um, using that digital menu. Because another thing was that uh, a lot of restaurants would have either their own delivery that would be uh, relatively crappy because you mm -hmm. need to kind of call them and um, uh, you need to call them and you need to like just look at some 
photo of the menu and then make an order. So we thought that we, we could improve that and also inside the venues because we, oh, I think the, the best way that my co-founder explained it was that um, he remembers a lot of times when he would go out and he would order something and have particular expectations. And uh, those expectations would often be missed. And he always said that <laughs> had he seen um, the photos of that meal, he would not have ordered it in yeah, the first place yeah. and ordered something else. So yeah, like we 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 really went down that uh, idea. So you you and your uh, I guess co-founder were bouncing spitting ideas, and and you got this one uh, because he was uh, disappointed <laughs> with with a couple of uh, of dishes he got. So he's like, you know what? Well, if there was pictures, things wouldn't be like this. And you start you start building it. And, and one thing interesting from from your article, uh, so Kill wrote a really interesting article where he basically describes the whole um, journey. So I recommend everyone to go and read it. I will link it also in the description. You said at the moment you quit your job, there was uh, this feeling of freedom and also this feeling of anxiety. And I, I totally relate to that because I, I felt the same. But I, I would love to hear from 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 you so what is this can you describe this feeling of anxiety and when why did it uh, start yeah so yeah the first feeling that you have when you uh, quit your job and you like have your days to do whatever you want is that you're really excited because now you can do like literally whatever you want you can pick whatever yeah. um and it feels really good for a really short time before you realize that now you actually need to commit to something else you can't do random things every day that would um, make you have fun you actually need to pick something and you actually need to do a lot of hard make a lot of hard decisions um, and it brings a lot of anxiety because now um, you have this endless stream of like ideas and possibilities, and it sounds really cool, uh, but you need to pick one. And uh, what's even worse that you can make bad decisions and there is probably nobody to tell you that. Like at, yeah. at, at my job, I would have somebody who's senior to me who would sometimes kind of correct me or like I, I could go to them for help um, and they would yeah. kind of guide me. They would set some goal for me or something like that. When you are just free soloing or like, doing whatever you want um no there is nobody to set goals for you and mm -hmm. um setting goals that you are actually confident in and that, that you are actually ready to pursue uh week after week month after month is hard <laughs> yeah 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 and yeah i felt really anxious because uh, i have not felt that much responsibility for my life overall um yeah before <laughs> Yeah, I can totally relate to that. The the it's also thrilling, and it's also why we do this because now we get more control somehow over our lives. But at the same time, now we have more control over our lives, which means that if we make mistakes, no one will tell us, "Hey, by the way, you're doing the wrong." No one will take responsibility. Basically, it's it's yeah, all up to you. It also felt like I like I didn't know what I'm doing, and uh, like yeah. And, and yeah, I, I was really anxious because it seemed like everybody knows what they're doing, but I didn't. And uh, like, yeah. I was really afraid of making wrong decisions. Now I feel much comfortable with it, not because I've learned um, a lot. I'm still anxious about my decisions, 
but I realized that nobody knows what they're doing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and like, uh, like it's actually it's just part of the journey. So um, yeah, now when yeah. you just accept it as part of it. Yeah, exactly. I think you just get used to that. So you you had this idea and you did a, I guess a little bit of market research, but. Tell me about the next steps. Did you start building? Did you build an MVP? How did that go? Yeah, we, we were trying to be really smart about it and not build too much prematurely. So my partner would um, create some Figma designs to mm -hmm. just have a general idea of what it would look like. And we would start, we, we would try to talk to different people and show them, I mean, talk in general and maybe then show them the um those mock-ups and uh my I, I think before that my partner read the book called the mom's test about customer yeah, interviews yeah yeah so one of the ideas um of a correct customer interview is that you don't at least not before the end you, you don't try to uh, bounce your idea off of your potential customer yeah. you actually yeah like ask questions about what they do and about their problems and if they don't mention the problem that you think you're solving then there is something wrong and if they do then bingo like it's it's a very it's a very simple way to describe um the the, the kind of right way to do a customer interview but it's definitely part of it yeah and we tried to do that but the large mistake that we've made was that we speak like we spoke mostly to people who are also restaurant visitors Right. Which right now seems like a huge blunder. And it's like, duh, like they're not <laughs> the ones who are going to pay you. But yeah, like we did it. And uh, what's even worse, uh, a lot of people told us um, in our cool mom test interviews that it's essentially it's a great idea <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because yeah, we were yeah. trying to uh, kind of ask them indirectly about what pains they have with visiting restaurants and yeah. like picking meals, stuff like that. And they would say a lot of things that we wanted them to say. And yeah, yeah, you were guiding they, them, right? You were like, yeah, the, isn't it annoying when you order something and it doesn't match your expectations? And yeah, that's like, true. Yes. But even even if they say it without our cues, we would be like, ah, bingo. So they yeah. do have that problem. Somebody told us that they right. kind so of... So you ignore the ones that don't say it and you overvalue the ones that do say it, right? Of You're course, like, now, like looking at two and a half years after that, yeah. um, it's like kind of obvious that we should have talked to people actually running restaurants and managing restaurants and yeah, stuff like the, that. The clients, right? Yeah, yeah, the, the clients. And like our large problem was that we just thought that we were building a product for people like ourselves, which are restaurant visitors and not the owners. But yeah, it, it, it was a blunder. So we, um, we, we, we did those interviews and we were excited to build the product. So we built an MVP. And luckily we had some... Uh, people in our networks, uh, primarily in my partner's network, who were kind of managing restaurants. So we reached out to them to like try to show them the product and try to get them to use it for free. And we would have the opportunity to see in, in general how they operate yeah, yeah. and get their feedback and stuff like that. You optimized the MVP for the clients that were going to test it right away. So they, they couldn't add pictures, they couldn't add anything. You would do that for them. Is yeah, yeah, we would. Yeah, in the beginning, we would fill out the menus for uh, for them. Um, yeah. For some venues, actually, my partner went physically to the venue with his camera and it took pictures. To, 
yeah I took pictures of all of the meals Interesting. um yeah it was it, yeah it was it, it, it was about the time when it started to feel fun because it felt yeah. like we were hustling like now we yeah. go to the restaurants and do whatever it takes to for them to use our product was there any particular style of cuisine that uh, would would be your target customers that would like your product the most i would say it wasn't it was less about the type of cuisine and more about the type of the restaurant itself so like do they have okay. waiters or do you order at the counter stuff like that and yeah we um so yeah we in the beginning we were just we were just trying to have whatever clients we could have and uh, we were like in this process of like uh, receiving the feedback and adapting the product every uh every day essentially and um like doing whatever it takes for them to enjoy the product Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, this this process continued for um, maybe a couple of months and then COVID hit. Do you remember when uh, COVID kind of started? When did COVID first pop up in your radar? Do you remember that? So, yeah, I remember it when... So, um, I, I, I have a girlfriend and she needed to go to Barcelona to a conference mm -hmm. in February 2020, right? It started, yeah. Right. And um, yeah, so like she she was she was getting prepared and um, everything was set and she had the tickets and stuff. And at the very last moment, maybe like a few days before the conference or something like that, the and it, it was a huge conference, like thousands of people. The organizers of the conference would issue a note that the it seems like the conference is not going to happen because okay. there's some like pandemic things. And um, it was it was really vague because um like nobody knew what was happening a lot there was a lot of suspicion that there were other reasons than that uh it was like it, it wasn't like COVID was in the news uh there was something going on about um COVID in spain specifically like a lot of people got sick stuff like right. that but it wasn't really serious so this decision to cancel the conference um seemed outrageous So they canceled it, but a lot of people flew in anyway and had their like unofficial conference and all, all, all that. But then they just literally like one one month later, most like the whole world started to just yeah. shake. Did you think like, wait, maybe this is bad for my business? Maybe this can affect the way our product is uh, developing? Um, we were not sure if it was going to be bad or good. So the initial impression was that it's going to ruin everything because the restaurants are just going out of job and they can't make money and stuff. Um, so, and they were cutting anything that was non-essential and we were definitely a non-essential service uh, to them unless we make ourselves essential, right? So there was risk that, yeah, we would need to just shut it down because nobody's going to pay for it because nobody has the money. But on the other hand, we thought that if we make it more essential than there is some potential that like with any crisis, you have uh, like new opportunities. Yeah. yeah, so one of the opportunities was that uh, the delivery thing, like now you only can uh, take orders for like takeaway if you're lucky and, uh, and you can take orders and deliver them. And with delivery, the problem for uh, an average restaurant was that you either uh, work with the platforms and the platforms take a lot of money from you. And I, I, I'm not sure, but I think they even increased the fees uh, after the COVID started. So 
you would not make a lot of money uh, with that or you built your own delivery but with your own delivery now you have like a lot of new problems um, the obvious ones like who's going to deliver it and how far are you going to deliver it yeah and the, your logistics is going to be much more expensive than when, than that when you work with um, aggregators and platforms so our idea was that if we could help them at least partially to build their own uh, delivery flow, uh, it would uh, like our service would become more essential. Right. And we realized that for a delivery, they would need like three components, which is one of uh, is like the menu and the way to take uh, orders online. Uh, the second one would be um, how to attract traffic, because previously they would not really bother with that. And the third mm -hmm. one is logistics. And we quickly realized that we can't do logistics at all because it's too complicated and you need a lot of um, capital to enter that area. Um, we could do stuff on the marketing side, uh, like do marketing for them maybe automatically and maybe make money off of it. But we already were building something that resembled the most obvious thing, which is taking orders online. Yeah. Yeah, they have no idea on how to sell their business online, right? So they are more traditional. So yeah, yeah. What, how do you, what, what do you end up doing with your product? The actual problems would change um, rapidly and depending on who we talk to. So for example, um, one of the ideas that we had initially was that um, like there is uh, takeaway was still possible. And the problem with the takeaway was that uh, during the peak hours, there would be really long lines and uh, they needed to wait, especially for like non-traditional cousin, when you need to buy some Israeli food and it's your time to order and you don't know the difference between like hummus and falafel and you like it takes you five minutes to actually order and then there's like 20 people like you um it takes a long time and we thought that maybe we could automate it and so people don't stand in line they just scan a QR code yeah so that there would be like something like that then like then the government would shut down takeaway and now we can't do it so now we try to do the delivery so this is what this was the period when when we was we, we were trying to do a lot of things uh, at once because the actual demands changed really, really rapidly. Mm -hmm. And as the result, we developed a lot of different um, kind of user scenarios. So as a result, right. we had takeaway, we had delivery, we had like a lot of things that different clients um, needed. Around this, uh, around this time, we actually started to uh, charge money from from our clients, and we mainly received them like first the word of mouth, but it didn't really work. It, like it didn't really scale, so we were lucky to have um, some clients via the word of mouth. And the second one would be actually just running ads and stuff because when oh. the COVID hit, uh, people would actually start Google things like uh, a website for delivery. Um, right, and yeah. like website to take orders, so we would like start to hunt for those keywords and like produce some, not not even produce content, but maybe just use the right words on our landing page, and uh, yeah, put some money into advertisements, and we would actually have some clients, and we would try to cling on them and just talk to everybody who showed any interest right. towards our service. So yeah, we started to make some money, but the problem was that we had all kinds of clients because we were chasing clients in all directions. Like some of them wanted to have a delivery. Some of them just thought that having digital menu is just cool for your Instagram. But 
for many of them, the actual replacement that they were happy with was um, a QR code. And behind the QR code, there is a PDF uploaded to Google Drive with the menu. And okay. they didn't really... So this is another example that where they didn't really care about the visitor experience because everybody mm-hmm. we've spoken to uh, were kind of struggling to like because you need to like pinch and zoom and nobody liked um, looking at those PDFs. But anyway, the restaurants didn't really care that much. And, and how much money were you making back then? So I think we had like maybe up to 10 paying customers and okay. uh, they would pay around 20 bucks per month. So it's... Uh, 200. I think it was even lower. I would say that like maybe we made maybe like a hundred. So for for the next, uh, I guess, then uh, two years of COVID, you're just trying to get acquire more clients. You're trying with different kinds of marketing strategies using uh, ads, uh, trying to see what where you should focus on regarding your uh, your product. When when COVID was like a little bit more under control. Do you remember how much money you were making? How many clients you had? Do you have like a better idea? So by the end of 2020, um, as far as I remember, we had 50 clients that paid us, mm-hmm. uh, resulted from our kind of attempts to solve all kinds of problems. Right. right. So it was one year in, essentially, and we have 50, um, 50 clients. That that would generate around what five hundred to one thousand. Yeah, it was. I think it was around six hundred MRR. Yeah, something like that. So COVID was about to finish, or a little bit uh, uh, more under control, uh, and and things were a little bit more predictable. But then another challenge reached Ukraine, right? Especially Ukraine. I guess you're only Europe, but mostly uh, Ukraine with the with the invasion. So, do you? Remember when, what, where you were when this first happened? When you heard about this this invasion? The way I remember it was that, uh, so it was early in the morning, and uh, luckily the city that I lived in did not get bombed or anything on the mm-hmm. first day, so we did not wake up to like uh, air alarm or like bombings or something like that. We w- woke up to like uh, my girlfriend received a call from her colleague at about maybe 6 a.m. or something like that. And the uh, colleague said that he was not going to be at the office today. And she asked why. And he said like, oh, you don't know. Like, haven't you seen? The, like the invasion has started. Like the our capital gets uh, bombed. And we were like, what? Um, so crazy. this is how it's. Yeah, this is like we were just lying in our beds and it's 6 a.m. Now we had our alarm for maybe 7.30 or something like that. So we actually got woken up by the call. And he said, like, yeah, like, there is war. I'm not going to be at the office. <laughs> like, see ya. Um, and, yeah, this is when it started. And we opened our, like, feeds, like, news feeds. And, yeah, like, quickly just got terrified and stuff. Because yeah. uh, even though in our city it was still kind of silent, but... Like the the, the 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 thing with the invasion was that it wasn't like um, it wasn't like there was like one particular point uh, a place like in the country that got bombed or essentially invaded. It was like all around the country because they like invaded from multiple exactly. places yeah, at the yeah, same yeah. time. Yeah, and it was really terrifying because um, like you don't know where the 
like we didn't know how much time it would take for them to come to your home and you don't know what's um, going to happen yeah so like just the overall feeling was that first we were terrified it was hard to believe it so you always spend some time kind of trying to not have the thought trying to think that it's like just is going to end tomorrow then you kind of realize that oh shit it's not going to end tomorrow um so now you have to do something about it and you need to start taking responsibility for your own safety yeah 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 Yeah, that that's been crazy was it like a surprise um or was it something already expected somehow i think it was expected by a lot of people but by somebody like me who wasn't paying too much attention so like the uh, the context was that uh that russia would spend at least half a year moving their forces to the border with ukraine before that right. so it wasn't like a surprise that how come they have like hundreds of tanks or whatever to uh invade right. like everybody knew that they had amassed uh, a lot of forces at the border and it was terrifying already and it's been kind of scary for um it had been scary for half a year because like we have this war that's actually that has started in 2014 actually when russia yeah. annexed crimea and also part right, of like yeah, East, yeah. eastern ukraine so it wasn't like we already had some war going on there even though russia pretended it wasn't a war and they were not they, they had nothing to do with that so yeah anyway the main line was that that maybe uh they amassed that much power so that they can win that kind of small war there and take the rest of that piece of eastern ukraine and the forces were there just in case if like ukraine decided to fight back and they would kind of enter it but uh, the main idea would uh, be that they would not need to use it because like ukraine would just give up uh, that piece of land and it would end mm. but it was not the case right in that sense like everybody expected that something's going to happen also the american intelligence trying to warn the world that the war the war is about to start and they started right. it in january like they, they you, you you would see on the news that like they would they would even pick a specific date like january 26th would be the date that russia invades right. ukraine then it doesn't happen and everybody's like all oh, right and they would make uh, like another prediction and another prediction the last one i think would be something like february 16th or something like that it still doesn't happen right russia starts to kind of troll everybody that like yeah like you say that every week and like we don't invade and then they invade uh, on a date that yeah, like invade. wasn't picked in the news <laughs> yeah so everybody knew that something was going to happen but i think for somebody like myself who like didn't pay attention full time yeah. to that thing like we did not expect a like full-blown invasion yeah with the goal of just uh, taking over the whole country destroying the kind of current government and yeah so how were the days before the invasion like were people just working it was like a normal day yeah 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 absolutely normal day so like the only way yeah. the surface is that it's just like you just hear it from conversations like that uh, yeah like russia keeps amassing yeah, power at yeah. the border oh that sounds scary but like it would just go away in, in an instant and you just yeah do your your thing and, and for you right focusing on your project and I, I totally relate to that right like you're mostly all of your life is around that and and thinking how can we increase the mrr what should be the next feature how can we get more clients how can we do marketing everything this can quickly fill in your head right then and, and suddenly you have this which is you, your priorities have to change, right? As you said, now you didn't know how long it would take for them to reach your city. Um, 
how did you just like put your projects aside completely until you figured out how you could become safer or were you like still kind of working and how did that go first few days there was no work there was nothing like everything was put aside uh the first day we moved to the kind of edge of of our city for more safety to my mm -hmm. mom's because she has a uh like the kind of underground thing so we could hide in case yeah of, like a bunker yeah or something. Yeah, yeah it yeah. wasn't bunker but it's storage uh, underground storage yeah room. yeah uh mm -hmm. we would go there like essentially almost like a basement so we would hide uh, we would be able to hide there um this was the days that the air alarm would start to go off regularly and every time it goes Shit. off you would think like yeah this is the end um which was not the case but it was really terrifying right now like just four or five months in right now we are so used to it that uh, for example in Lviv it would sometimes go off at night and you would just wake up yeah. and think like oh fuck roll to the other side and go to sleep <laughs> because like Crazy. yeah yeah um which is like I mean it's a luxury that you can hear an air alarm and like think that it's not a big deal and there are some pragmatic reasons to that because like we live on the, at the first floor and the basement is not really far away and we just make a bet that if we got bombed it's not going to be directly in our apartment so we would have like we, we only need a couple of minutes to go to the safe place yeah so we kind of have the luxury of it which it, it's crazy that that you know for me it's crazy that you're you're already saying that it's a luxury and and i, I totally get from your point of view but you know for for me uh Fortunately, living in Portugal, quite far away <laughs> from the action and and without any any wars, for me that's crazy. You know, like thinking now, I think I am the lucky one. You know, I am the lucky one not waking up with alarms and and ignoring them. You know, because you you have to reach a point where you had so many uh, false alarms that you kind of think, okay, now it's okay, and and you're like calculating your chances of survival and everything. Yeah, yeah. So for me, it's actually the opposite. I, 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 mean, I even like, went as far as trying to compare uh, from the statistics that we had so far to trying to compare the chance of uh, me dying from bombings compared to the chance of, for example, a car incident. And I realized yeah. that it's, at the time of calculation, given all the criteria and wh where I was staying at, uh, it was much, still much more likely to die in a car crash than from a bombing from a pure statistical perspective. <laughs> this is how I try mm -hmm. to kind of rationalize, cal yeah, calm yeah. myself, cal yeah. calm myself down. That like statistically, yeah. it's not not a huge chance. But yeah. no, no, yeah. nevertheless, yeah. there was one day when like the city that I was staying at, it was bombed at least three times. I guess, and uh, yeah. one time I was actually on my morning walk, and uh, the sirens would go off, and I, I think I, sp I like I would have somebody on the phone, so the alarm would go off, and in a few minutes uh, I would hear like a really like huge explosion somewhere like in at least one kilometer radius uh, oh from me. yeah yeah and at first like you just don't like you know what it is but you don't really want to believe it so you're like ah is, is, yeah. is it really happening like is it really what i think it is yeah so then the second one would come much closer than the first one and i'm like oh fuck i need to do something so yeah i told the person to essentially like i'll i'll call them back <laughs> i have a problem here yeah, and uh, I would run for home, and uh, like few more would um, like hit, few more rockets would hit while I'm on my way. And then when I like when everything was over and I was safe and the bombing stopped, 
I looked at the places where it would hit and I looked at Google Maps and I realized that the closest to me was in 500 meters, like 500 meters away from me. Um, while oh I'm in there, and, and this is the most distant city from, like, in, in terms of yeah. kind, kind of bombing cities, this is one of the most distant ones. Was this? And and it's, it's still like, a crazy experience. Yeah, I, I I feel so 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 privileged and so lucky to, <laughs> to like actually be able to like be where I'm at, unheard, yeah. stuff like that. Um. To be, no, able to. to be and and hearing what you're saying, I I feel <laughs> as well. Like you know, we heard a lot and we still hear a lot in the news about uh, Ukraine and everything. And it's crazy, you know. In the first in the first months, everyone was like glued to the news. Everyone was like, oh, it was going everywhere and so on. And uh, and everyone tried to help as much as they could. And then eventually, life kind of goes on. Uh, and and then it's still of course people speaking about it every day and, and trying to help and everything but for for me for example i get to now work on my projects or they say okay let, let me put it on the side okay this is happening this is terrifying but i i am privileged enough to be able to okay now i can put it on the side and, and work on my twitter you know right which yeah, sounds yeah. ridiculous <laughs> you know thinking about twitter in these situations um how was it also for you then like your your first days was like figuring out how to how to be safe you started rationalizing and finding ways to live with it, uh, you know, by doing the calculations, comparing with car accidents, by knowing that you live in the first floor and, and everything. Were you able to return to your project? So a um, couple of weeks, maybe one and a half, maybe a couple of weeks after the invasion started, we moved from our original city, which is in eastern Ukraine, so relatively close to the action to western mm -hmm. ukraine so right now i'm staying in lviv which is like the mm -hmm. most western almost the most western city right. in ukraine um, very close to poland so we moved there and it was a uh, kind of quest in and of itself which is kind of another story so we moved here and uh, essentially like we moved here we found an apartment there were also stories about how we found the apartment and finally, when we had the apartment, had some safety and just being able to finally start to do like anything uh, related to our normal life. Yeah, it was it, it was two weeks into the war that we finally relaxed a little bit to be able to at least on a daily basis to do something. Because the problem in the original city was that I felt like I need to be scrolling the news all the time and if i don't do yeah. it something really bad happens and i don't know about it and that would be like a critical problem after we moved cities the major change was that we did not feel like we had to consume the news in real time anymore really like we still right. checked it like 100 times a day but at least Obviously, i could yeah. think to myself that if i forget about checking the news for at least one hour and do something like it's not going to end really badly and it gave me a lot yeah, of yeah. peace of mind you you just brought your essentials i guess and yeah uh, yeah we had like two backpacks and some food with us that's it yeah, yeah. that's the somehow the benefit of being <laughs> a, a, a coder right i mean your uh, your whole business uh, and job and everything yeah, is, yeah, is in your laptop, true. right? Yeah. And, uh, the, in that regard, also, like we are a little bit privileged because we can just work um, remotely from anywhere. So you you're able to to bring uh, somehow that 
to Lviv, you're able to somehow resume your project and and was it there when you decided to okay let's put this project food food football in the autopilot and start focusing in this uh, other tool yeah so we were discussing this uh before the war started because we by the end of 2021 we were not really satisfied with how it's going so by the end of 2020 we had 50 clients paying us and by the end of 2021 it was 150 so three times more but now we are two years in uh, we have 600 mrr uh, we are not sure who our customer is and we are not sure how to scale this whole thing. And by right. this time, we also realized, at least I realized quickly, that I did not really care that much about restaurant owners. There, there's no motivation, right? If you're not uh, caring too much. So what was the, the, the new idea? What, what are the customers you care about? We decided at that, at that point before the war, we um, just shared the concerns that it's, it's not going well and that maybe we should start thinking about different ways. And we weren't sure what we would do with the business because it does generate value for like a lot of people, actually, if we have mm. 150 restaurants. So we would see that like tens of thousands of people would see our menus every day. So we, we clearly didn't want yeah, to shut great. it down, but we weren't sure about investing more. So we started to have these experiments, like let's let's like go back and think again if there is something that we could like something else that we could do while we kind of reflect on what went wrong with the first business and what decisions we would not want to make again the yeah for me like one of the things was that i need to really care about the clients and um which basically means that i have a set of interests and uh, the people that I care the most are probably the people who share uh, one or many of those interests. And yeah. one of the largest ones, obviously, is being in the tech industry and talking to other right. developers and other people from the tech industry. There are other groups of people, but uh, I quickly realized that the tech industry is probably the only one uh, that they had like connection to that is... Mm -hmm really fruitful for building something and uh, i also wanted to like when i was working for corporate jobs i one of the things that i wanted to do the most is actually uh make the tools like we would always use some internal tools me and my team and i always yeah, wanted yeah. to like improve it and stuff so we again decided to make a spreadsheet with different ideas and this time like the ideas that came from me most of them were for the tech industry, like this tool and that tool right. and like this service and that service. And we again, like did the scoring and uh, like all, all while like running the previous business. So we weren't sure what to do with it. And at some point we re realized that we are ready to make another attempt uh, and do something else. And uh, in, in our scoring kind of my idea of building an open source tool had the largest score. Um, and it was really something this something that I was really passionate about. So we decided to essentially freeze the restaurant business, Futba, and uh, not invest anymore, but still like do the support, collect the money, fix right, bugs, right, yeah, it, like yeah. maybe make small features, make something that would make us uh, spend less time on support, stuff like that. And at the same time, focus on something something new. So since then, 
uh, football is it like uh, did you acquire new customers yeah it, you actually, lose customers? it actually grew quite a bit in the first two months of war forever for whatever reason yeah right now our mrr is around uh five six thousand um i think six thousand yeah yeah that's crazy yeah, it's, i think it's closer to five it's like five five thousand bucks mrr um from uh, football yeah from football yeah and, and we, yeah, we we don't invest uh much time we stop doing that uh there is almost almost no marketing so yeah but the good news is that uh, by this point uh it makes enough money for me to be able to do something else and not uh, looking for ways to sell my time for money yeah but it's yeah, i was thinking about that as well so you add your savings which is great but um one thing that we have as, as coders when we go full-time indie is that we know that we can get a job really quickly if we need it, right? Like, okay, if we need money, we just um, just stop our projects and, and get a job. Now with the war, is this uh, still something you can easily do? Can you just like easily get a job? So if I, you need I, I've always worked remotely, almost always, like except for my okay. very first job. So mm. I don't think that uh, the war... There would be a problem. Yeah, there would be a problem. I think it's kind of harder maybe to find a job in Ukraine if you want to like go to the office or just general work for a Ukrainian company. Right, right. But I don't really care that much because I would probably work for... You know, yeah. Uh-huh. But it's great because now you are making money while you're asleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dream come true, right? Yeah. But uh, now my anxiety is that any day the business would just end. And it will end if you just don't do anything with it. At some point, it will end. Like it's the destiny of any business, unless you kind of actually work on it. Even if you yeah. work on it, it will end at some point. And uh, with Impulse Dev, it's still kind of in the beginning, right? So you're still kind of building it. How are you doing things differently now? You're building more for your passion audience. And uh, are you making sure that this is actually a problem that exists and needs to be solved? I think Impulse is a very different product from what we built and some lessons I took seriously, such as the target audience, but some other things I decided to disregard. So for example, this like Impulse, with Impulse, I'm trying to do something that doesn't really exist at all in the world right now. And it's kind of an innovating product. And uh, I've decided to, so like it solves my mm -hmm. pain for sure. It solves uh, um, pain of some of the people that I've spoken to, but whether or not there is an existing pain that people can articulate that it can solve is still right. a question, which I'm going to answer, but it's not a question mm -hmm. that I started with. Um, so yeah, the, like I, 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 I realized that building dev tools, especially open source tools, it's like it's a game with a lot of different rules other than the compare compared to building commercial SaaS for you know mm -hmm. different industries and stuff essentially building building commercial crude apps right. um, and charging for them so uh, one of the examples which is more or less obvious I think is that uh, for dev tools the, the marketing thing is so much different like most of the success stories of the DevTools is uh, the kind of bottom up, right. bottom up growth when something becomes, you know, yeah, uh, become become becomes popular, yeah, like Tailwind yeah. CSS, for example, and generates a lot of following and users, and then um, 
like you can use it for for different goals and which is really great for me because i realized that um the most successful thing that you can do when you sell to developers and to the tech industry in general is actually like producing great content, mm. producing great product, um, being, you know, overall helpful. And it's less of like SEO optimized oh, cool. stuff yeah. and go knocking on the door, stuff like that. So yeah, it's, it's a game. It's still a new thing for me. So a lot of, a lot of uh, lessons that I've learned from running a, a SaaS don't apply directly to building an yeah. open source dev tool, Interesting. which, uh, yeah, like creates, yeah. But this time I decided to not optimize for making money as soon as possible. Now, one of the lessons that I've learned uh, from running football was that um, one thing that you want to keep in mind and actually maybe even optimize for is that there are always things that outlive the particular project. So, for example, skills that you acquire mm, or yeah, people that yeah, you meet yeah. or doors that generally open. Yeah, and I realized that with the restaurant industry, um, it's a problem for me that I, uh, I built some domain expertise in the domain that I didn't really care about. I had some contacts from the restaurant industry which are not going to be my future right. customers or employers or employees or anything like that or partners so i didn't really create a lot of inertia and i didn't really create like i didn't improve my um lock surface area um and uh, this one of the this is one of the lessons that i've actually taken seriously and with the tech industry i realized that there is so many ways to create value while building any particular mm -hmm. product but that value would be like would survive the product yeah. and it would like last for a long time. Like especially the exactly, people yeah. that you meet, um, maybe skills, but not not so much maybe for me because I'm already like almost ten years into software development. But yeah, a lot of a lot of things like that. So I decided to uh, this time since I have some um, cash runway again, I decided to focus on like exploring the different ways I could mm. create the long-lasting value and kind of the spin the flywheel that will maybe help yeah, me yeah. like in the future if I decide to do something else. I mean, it makes sense if you're already able to sustain yourself and if you're already making money from your projects, then I guess you, you can afford to do that. Uh, otherwise, I always recommend you know bootstrappers to start making uh, money as fast as possible. Because most of them, they, they need that. Yeah. They need that money to, to survive. Yeah. yeah, I think that's great advice. Yeah, I also recommend it to everybody that uh, the sooner you can make money, the better in general. Not only because you need it, but also because um, you need to get the validation yeah. as soon as possible or see that there is no validation and drop it as soon as possible and do something else. Tim Ferriss in one of his podcasts said famously that um, for any endeavor that he considers uh, taking part in, he thinks about like if everything fails, or what, what, what important skills yeah. he would be able to learn and what people he would be able to connect to. So I'm trying to think in uh, yeah. through the same framework. That makes all sense. And this is also something that I've learned with all the interviews I did. The audience, it's probably more important than um, than the product or the idea itself. So because if now your impulse dev fails, but you have created an audience of developers, you can immediately go and build another tool and immediately sell it right away. Uh, you can understand, you can validate it really quickly. So the audience is definitely 
one thing that you get by building products, and like you did as well with, with restaurant owners, even though you didn't care too much about it. But you did grow an audience around that. So if, if you now want to build another yeah, product true. around the same uh, niche, it's much easier for you because you know the, the industry better and you know how to communicate with them and, and the same with the, with any any industry and any, any product. And in this case, for coding, it's really easy as well for you to use Twitter or Indie Hackers or, uh, I don't know, Reddit to to kind of build in public and show what you're doing and still collect attention and collect followers. So, yeah, I totally, I totally agree with you. And, uh, yeah, Kirillo, thank you so much for, for sharing your story. As a, a last question, two years and a half after, with a war, a pandemic, something that you definitely did not predict, is this being worth it to quit your job and, and to focus uh, full-time in your project? So, first... I'm really lucky because I think that, again, the chances for any random person to have any kind of success starting something that, like, something like what I started is really slim. So even though we didn't find huge success, I realized that, like, the, the, the likeliest outcome was that there is nothing, like zero MRR and, uh, you know, a lot of time wasted. So I'm really happy that he like succeeded in some way. And I never regretted leaving a job. I burned through, through all of my savings. The opportunity costs were much higher than what I've made with the right. previous business. So in other words, if I just stayed at my job or found, found another job, I would have made yeah. much more than I made with my previous business. And still, like, I don't really think it was a loss. I'm, I'm really happy I left my job. I understand that sometimes maybe I'll find a job uh, because everything else fails. But to me, I realize that it's much more important, especially um, while I'm young and I don't have kids and I, don't, I have all the freedom to, you know, experiment with my life. Uh, it just doesn't make sense to play it conservatively. And did it kind of change the way you see life and see society in the way it's organized? Because, you know, for me, it's super hard in the beginning to leave the safety um, of, of a job and an unemployment money and, and everything to, to focus full time on your projects. But now it seems natural, you know, and now I see it in like a different perspective. I see like, Oh, these people are being, not, not, not to that extent, but somehow that you are being controlled by what society uh, tells you to do. Uh, and like, I see it now from the other side with much more freedom and I have a different understanding how, on how the world can work. Did that also change for you? Yeah, well, I think the first thing I realized is that like most of people don't, don't know what they're doing. And most people don't know how to so like everybody's having existential crisis crises um that's true all the time <laughs> and uh like nobody knows how to do it properly like uh, not people who work in jobs not people who are successful at entrepreneurship so yeah um this this is an actual like equalizer there but also yeah i realized like you said that um when you see it from the outside, like people working and especially like people who are not really happy with what they're doing, you kind of realize that it's somewhat tragic that not like not more people have yeah. the opportunity to 
try to make something um, themselves. It's it's really tragic. Um, I, I, there is nobody we could blame, I guess, not one party. It's not government. It's not education. It's not people themselves. It's just the world is really complicated and we all want safety and we all want stability, especially in Eastern Europe with the USSR mm -hmm. Hanover people still prioritize stability over prosperity, uh, which hurts them in many ways often. Right. And, and I also realize that there are no rules. You know, when you work for jobs, you think that there are rules yeah. to a career. You think that there are rules to how you talk to people. You think that True. there are rules everywhere. And at some point, yeah, you just realize when you yeah. do your own thing is that there are like no rules at all. Uh, like other than, I don't know, other than like law. Even law was somehow created, right? Like, I mean, I guess if we go back to the philosophical thing, then you, I guess you have the rules of physics or something. That's the only thing that you cannot really change. Yeah, yeah. In the end, yeah, it boils down to some like, yeah, universal rules. But in the end, like you think that there are like, all, you realize that all the rules that you see inside the society is just, it. they are, most of them are constructed by people who are as silly as you are who are like are as confused about the life as you are and yeah like it's, it's just up to you how to play it you never know what what can happen as well and uh, so yeah i think that's definitely what i've learned with my conversation with you kirill and uh, um, thank you so much for uh, sharing your journey with uh, wannabe entrepreneurs yeah thanks for reminding me it's been awesome if you want to support this podcast i don't do any advertisement but there's many ways for you to make sure that this will continue to exist. First of all, you can become a member of the WB space. It costs 10 bucks per month and you get access to an amazing community filled with bootstrappers, all of us sharing our journey and building our projects together. Besides that, you can also acquire my bootstrappers guide. It costs $10. It's a one-time payment and you get an amazing guide that I derived from all the interviews I did on this podcast. Besides that, you also get one month access to the community. So it's a great deal and you just can find it on my website, wannabe-entrepreneur.com. You can also find merch, amazing t-shirts and cups and mugs and everything at uh, store.wannabe-entrepreneur.com. Besides that, obviously, sharing it around with your friends, your entrepreneur friends will take this podcast a long way. This was another Wannabe Entrepreneur. See you next time.